In so many dimensions, it really is a unique and specifically horrific experience, even for a group of people that have maybe suffered war trauma, poverty, gang violence, etc. There's something about torture which I think feels really personal and really confusing. This is Voices in America. I'm Jonathan Shapiro. We become numb sometimes to the reality of what refugees endure. I'm really humbled, in fact, to just witness on a daily basis so much individual courage for our clients that actually made a choice to stand up for something they believed in, knowing they might suffer something horrific. There are images in refugee camps, the constant political protests. It all fails to convey what it must be like to truly live like a refugee in 2017. My name is Cynthia Willard. I'm a physician. I spent many years working in the issues of immigrant health in Los Angeles and overseas. Currently, I'm the medical director of Program for Torture Victims. Now, I know you've traveled and worked overseas mm -hmm. in a number of countries where refugees come from. Mm -hmm. How did you get interested in the area? You know, it's interesting for me, I knew early on that I wanted to kind of commit my life to sort of social justice issues. I realized there was just something really inspiring and interesting to me about immigrant stories. You know, I was born in the U.S. I grew up in the Boston area. Both of my parents were born in the U.S. Although I think like every other American, even though my immigrant roots are several generations in the distance, they always sort of informed our family stories, which I, I think is really a quintessential American story because I don't have recent immigrant roots. They're distant, and yet even at that, they were the stories that got retold over and over again. You know, great-great-grandparent coming from Sweden, you know, great-grandparent um, coming from France, England. Even a few generations removed, it was really those immigrant stories that sort of informed my sense of identity growing up. It's sort of just part of the fabric, I think, of American life. And I think there's something about sort of the resiliency and the hope that comes with immigrant stories. People usually move to a new place. Some, many are forced to. They come with a set of histories, but also just a hopeful vision for the future. And I find that just really engaging. And what drew you to medicine? When I started college, I really knew that I was interested in social justice issues. But as I moved through college, I had an experience where I lived overseas as an exchange student in West Africa. So I was in Liberia just before things really um, took a terrible turn with the Civil War. And while I was there, I ended up volunteering in a hospital and just sort of had this epiphany that medicine sort of gave me a universal access to human stories. I, I think I was really and still continue to be drawn by just human stories, and that's my draw to medicine. And so the science isn't what pulled me into medicine, but the idea that I could learn a set of skills that would allow me to kind of move in and out of any community I wanted to and give me access to those stories is really what drew me to medicine. It's so fascinating that, that it's love of narrative that drew you to... Yes. So many people say to me, oh, you're in medicine, so you're a science person. I'm like, no. <laughs> my, my subject was English, stories, you know, narratives.
So you come to it from the public health standpoint. Yes, right? and I think my passion is really in primary care and working kind of on the front line with communities. What drew you specifically to torture victims? If anybody had told me years ago, even when I knew that I had you know, worked overseas and was committed to kind of immigrant and refugee issues, that I would spend a significant portion of my time focused on the issue of torture, I would have been surprised. So it's an issue that came to me in a couple of ways. When I was getting my master's in public health at Berkeley, I had some really seminal mentors. One, um, Vince Iacopino is just a towering figure in the field of health and human rights. He's an amazing physician and um, does a lot of work with Physicians for Human Rights. And so he really had a significant impact on me. I, I was already predisposed to kind of global health issues, issues of human rights, but he taught a health and human rights course and introduced me to the work of physicians actually documenting human rights violations and how powerful that is as a tool for legal processes and even just for affirming somebody's experience to have sort of that ability to get what they went through documented. It's a way of saying, yes, you know, what happened to you, here it is. It's in this, it's in this piece of paper. It's something you can use to improve your legal status. And so he introduced me to that and sort of the larger field of health and human rights. And that is how I moved into the area of torture. And I think the next step for me was that in part because of my husband's job, we ended up moving to Salt Lake City, Utah for a while. Um, Salt Lake had recently become a refugee relocation city. I had recently done work in Kosovo and Albania and was eager to kind of stay connected to issues of immigrants and refugees and human rights. And so did a needs assessment of the community to see if there were certain aspects of refugee health care that weren't being addressed. And what came up over and over again was this issue of torture survivors and them having a unique set of needs that they were sort of a higher risk subgroup of refugees that were really having a hard time with the resettlement program. So I ended up starting a nonprofit in Salt Lake City called the Health and Human Rights Project to provide wraparound services to torture survivors. And that is the legacy that has brought me ultimately to my role here in Los Angeles at Program for Torture Victims. It's hard enough to be a refugee and an immigrant. What does being a torture victim add to that challenge? It's important to just clarify the term torture when we speak about it because it's a word that gets thrown around so much sort of colloquially. But I think as we're using it here, it really applies to people who have been subjected to some type of mental or physical abuse by an actor of the state for really specific reasons. And I think it's such a perverse form that is individually targeted to you, either because you took a stand or you're an innocent bystander and you've been falsely accused of something, that it tends to really erode trust. I think when somebody has suffered, you know, a natural disaster or a war, horrific experiences, there's a sense of like a collective experience and it's not personalized to you. But for torture survivors, who have maybe gone through a range of horrific experiences. It feels very personal, it's really confusing, really erodes trust. And I think that's the biggest consequence beyond the physical and mental consequences that come from any kind of trauma. It's that sudden feeling of not understanding the world, of feeling like your self, your sense of you as an individual has been destroyed or tarnished. And it sort of turns upside down your idea of who you can trust and who you can engage with. So I think it has specific and unique consequences. You as the person documenting these stories of torture are providing the record 
that will allow these people to stay in the United States or not stay in the United States. Tell us what you do. Tell us about your organization. Our organization is located here in Los Angeles. We actually provide services to clients mostly in the LA County area, but a lot of the surrounding counties as well. Our clients, uh, we only work with clients that have experienced, have come from another country and are uh, have experienced some type of political torture. So we have a fairly strict definition of who we provide services to. Um, our clients come from 70 countries around the world. They don't always reflect kind of what is going on geopolitically in the moment. So for example, you know, the Syria crisis is horrific. We do have some Syrian clients, but that doesn't comprise the majority of our clients. Most of our clients are asylum seekers. So we tend not to work with refugees, so folks that have already been given legal status and have been resettled here in the U.S. I think there are other services in Los Angeles for those folks. The asylum seekers tend to come uh, not connected to any kind of assistance. So most of our clients are asylum seekers. And it's the program for torture victims, but it's specifically geared toward those people who are in the process of seeking legal status as torture victims who are under the law entitled to asylum. Yes, and I guess I'll just clarify that, you know, eligibility for our program is that you've survived political torture in a country, not the U.S. Most of our clients happen to be asylum seekers because we haven't focused a lot of our resources on reaching out to legally settled refugee communities here in L.A. So not to say we wouldn't accept a client who's already here with legal status. I just think the majority of our clients come to us through channels that really are more connected to the asylum seeker community. Roughly how many how many clients are you able to, to, to help? At any given time, we have about 300 active clients. We tend to take in about 150 new clients a year, and clients stay with us as long as they need services. I think most clients end up needing the majority of the services in the first year that they connect with us, although that's changing now that the asylum process is so backlogged. We have a lot of clients who are in a limbo state for much longer than they used to be. So they tend to need services for longer than they did when the asylum process moved a little more quickly. And you say 300 clients from 70 countries. I, are, there, are there more people that you could help if you had the resources? Yes, we have quite a long waiting list. Um, we have a long waiting list for services. We have an especially long waiting list for clients that really need the forensic documentation. So we are limited by funds. The heart of what we do starts with our case management team that does intake and assess clients' needs in general. So um, not that we have quick fixes to any of these issues, but we really try to work on you know, food, housing, safety planning, helping clients access education. We link clients to legal services. We have in-house mental health specialists who work with clients on their trauma. We have a robust medical program where we really try to enroll clients in primary care and health coverage. We also provide, I think, a lot of general support and community building. So we have a lot of groups that we hope our clients can find some way to access so that they can build ties with each other. So at this point, we have an art group, we have an LGBT group, some trauma release exercise groups. We try to create groups to create community. And legally, in order to receive asylum, you have to be able to prove that you were a victim of some form of torture based on your ethnic group, your political views, your political activities, in some cases, gender itself. 
if you're a victim of female. Just in general, I would assume just through the cases I've worked on that people who've been victims of this kind of torture are very isolated. I hear you to say that some of what you're doing is just helping these people feel a safe sense of community. That is a huge part of it because, you know, as I said, most of our clients are asylum seekers, which means that they've fled a situation and they've left literally everything behind. You know, they've left not only their um, material goods, they've left families, they've left identities. You know, I'd say most of our clients who suffered political torture, you know, not all of them, but they tended to be activists, either journalists, doctors, lawyers, teachers, filmmakers, artists, or we now have a growing group of people who just suffered this kind of violence because of who they are. So for, you know, being transgender, uh, we have a large LGBT community. There is just so much going on now with persecution of um, homosexuals in other countries. A few countries in Africa in particular are really um, comprising a lot of our clients now because of changing laws um, throughout the world. Talk to me about the experience that these folks have going through the legal system, if you can. I'll comment on the medical system as well. So um, for people who have survived political torture, many times, you know, they've suffered horrific abuse from people in uniforms that should have represented some type of institution in their own country, either police force, military, that provided assistance, but sort of turned that on its head. So I think seeing anybody in uniform can be really, really triggering. But in many countries, you know, physicians actually are complicit or play some role in these torture machines. And so even going to a doctor's office can be really stressful and triggering for survivors of torture. I think especially when, you know, you're talking about pulling out an EKG machine or closing a door suddenly or moving clients from one space to another to get their blood drawn. It's just really important that they're given some sense of agency and they're really heavily prepared for what they're about to experience so they themselves can sort of remove themselves from some of the memories and the triggers. I have talked to victims of torture who, who did have the experience of members of the medical profession assisting the torturers. I mean, it's interesting. I think that, especially with the relatively recent Senate Intelligence Report, there were definitely medical and psychology professionals involved in helping the U.S. develop some of its enhanced interrogation programs. And that's really true across the world as well. For the medical profession, it's really just not debatable. It breaches every possible code of professional conduct or ethical sense going back to the Hippocratic Oath. I think for some of the professional bodies for psychologists, they're really grappling with that now here in the U.S., looking at how to make a unified statement, um, really espousing you know, ethical standards as well to keep psychologists who are heavily involved in the recent en enhanced interrogation techniques here in the U.S. Because there seems to be a lack of accountability. Well, you have to start with acknowledgement that something occurred before you can really hold somebody accountable. Is there any inherent conflict between the medical treatment side and the legal documentation side? Every program sort of handles it differently. And I also think there's a bit of a difference between the psychology perspective on that and the medical, physical medicine perspective. So I think for our team of psychologists at PTV, uh, it's hard for them. So I think when you're creating a forensic report or documentation on maybe the consequences or what somebody suffered mentally based on what they went through, 
it is evidence that comes out over many sessions and it's impossible for a psychologist to sit with somebody and move through their story and their symptomatology without without intervening without developing that therapeutic relationship in conjunction so i think it's much more difficult for psychologists to separate out treatment and forensic documentation part of what i do at ptv is manage a medical home a primary care program so that our clients can get really specialized services that are sensitive to what they've gone through as a torture survivor the other part of what i do is documentation for me i really do try to keep those separate i think my role as a physician when i'm providing primary care to somebody is much more as their advocate almost unquestioningly when we create a forensic report it's just really important that for it to be really useful in court it is an objective documentation that the advocacy role is not a big part of what's happening with the report so when i meet with clients for a report i really make it clear that i'm not your physician i usually meet them not at a medical facility i'll meet them at ptv you know this is not a medical clinic i'm not providing medical care i'm not working as your advocate this is an objective report that you and your attorney can use for documentation purposes i just think it's really really important that we as an agency maintain our credibility by providing you know the highest level of objectivity in our reports that we can and not everyone you see who claims to be a torture victim in your report is said to be a torture victim yes correct so we'll just leave it at that yes do you find this work satisfying I do find it very satisfying. <laughs> I sometimes hesitate to tell people what I do because they they step back and they think, "Wow, that's that's hard, that's harsh, that's strange." Almost like they're afraid of what I'm going to tell them about my work. And I'll have people say, "How do you do that day in and day out?" But I have to say we're working with a unique set of torture survivors. So, I think I look at the client before me and the clients that we work with are the people that have survived whatever they went through that had a set of tools and resiliency to get out of whatever situation they're here and as much as they're trying to work through what they went through they're really invested in their future and so it can be a really positive and rewarding experience to be meeting somebody at that point that point in their life and helping them carve out a future that looks very different from what they've what they've gone through. Does gender play a role in what you do? Are women especially vulnerable or increasingly more vulnerable to torture than they were perhaps when you first started? I don't see a difference. I think that there's always a gender dimension to what somebody's experienced with torture, but I also think we make a lot of assumptions. So I think that when we look at sexual violence as a method of warfare and some of the horrific civil wars and civil unrest going on around the world, I do think women are targeted more heavily and are more likely to be victims of that kind of violence. I'll say over and over again in terms of individual torture, sexual torture is used frequently with men as well because it's just an ultimate form of control and humiliation. So I see many men who have suffered awful rape and sexual humiliation as part of their torture experience. There's something about torture that seems to be somehow more debasing and crueler than even murder. Mm -hmm. Why is that? I think it's because especially when you're talking about an agent of the state, torture as I said before is a really personal 
and systematic way of inflicting just horrific mental or physical pain on somebody. And there's always humiliation component to that. Torture is used much less often than people think to acquire information. Well, this is people. what I wanted to say. The, the, the assumption that it's being used as interrogation. Right. And in fact, in the clients I had, it seemed to have been used purely as a form of sadism and punishment. And terrorizing communities. And that's why so many torture survivors are allowed to survive. They go out and it's a way of terrorizing communities. It's been shown over and over and over again that it's really not an effective way to acquire information. So even if we're not speaking about the moral or ethical dimensions of torture as a valid form of interrogation, it's not effective. So yeah, I think most of our clients haven't experienced torture as a form of somebody trying to get information from them. Have the stories of these torture victims changed your view of humanity or your spiritual outlook or? I feel like I should say yes, because, you know, I'm the repository of these horrific stories. But I'd say in a way, no, because, you know, along with every story of what somebody suffered, are people that were also surrounded by other courageous people who helped them out, or the person sitting before me maybe suffered torture because they were courageous enough to go out and protest some of Putin's policies, or they were an LGBT activist in Uganda. And so it's also really affirming of sort of the courage. It's really humbling and sort of affirms some of the beauty and courage of the human experience. Sometimes the victims of torture are forced to become torturers themselves. Mm -hmm. Have you found that in your practice? And, and does that change the dynamic or the treatment? I have not experienced that with any of our clients. And I'll tell you that it would, it would offer a real dilemma for us because we do not work with torturers. And so I think other programs, and I have colleagues at other programs, have confronted that situation. It's really difficult. I think it's different when somebody's been coerced into violent acts as opposed to somebody who's actually played both roles in their lives. Um, we at our program do not work with torturers. The, the movement towards what led to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and uh, the idea of forgiveness being a part of treating torture victims, what are your thoughts on that? So what I am about to say might be kind of controversial, but I'll say given that the individual work we're doing with clients or the work we do with clients is really individual, because for almost none of our clients is there any access to any justice component, there is no way to maybe publicize specifically who targeted them. They're lacking in power to access any form of justice. It's hard to move immediately to conversations around forgiveness. We really tend to focus on making somebody feel like their story has been heard and then move them forward in terms of their goals for the future. And if they identify forgiveness as a part of that, we're happy to. But you're on, you're on, you're on the ground floor of recovery. The truth is we you are. are, you are, forgiveness is a uh, possible value down the road, but you're, you're, that's been my experience. It's the, the folks you're dealing with are really it's just It's too started. early on, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, I only ask because of, it's always struck me that this movement towards forgiveness is really in, in an odd way insulting to the victims because it puts some onus on them to to dig deep. to obtain closure for, exactly. so we can move on. I think that there's a really, really big difference between forgiveness linked to justice 
and the whole notion of forgiveness. And if people can access that because of religious traditions, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. I'm not in support of it. I'm not not in support of that. But I think um, broadly with our clients, it would be easier to work towards forgiveness if there were some access to justice. The Gospels, the story of Jesus and the story of uh, his suffering, I've always uh, been interested in the historiography of it and how it sort of informs in the West our notion of how one is supposed to view state-sanctioned punishment and uh, standing up for one's ideals. A, is there, just if, if you have any thoughts on that, and, and then B, are, what are the cultural differences based on where people are from, what their faiths are, as to how individuals view their torture? Our clients come from a whole diverse set of religious traditions. I find it really beautiful and inspiring for those that are really engaged with their religious tradition, how much strength and support that can give them. And um, despite the diversities of religious traditions, I think that people tend to access religion in similar ways as a way of sort of explaining suffering and finding strength and moving on. In terms of the Christian tradition and the Jesus story, maybe not unique to the Christian tradition. We have to be careful of not creating sort of a nobility to suffering. Suffering is suffering and suffering is horrific. That is the commonality of our clients, no matter what comfort or explanatory power they find in their religious tradition to move towards healing. Suffering is suffering and can be deeply destructive. Could you read the Emma Lazarus poem for us, which you are so responsible that you brought your own copy? I have to put on my reading glasses. <laughs> I'm middle-aged too, by the way. I, I understand. <laughs> so The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This has been Voices in America. Our producer and editor is Christian Humes. Music by Matt Rapoli. Our associate producer is Judy London, Legal Director, Public Counsel, Immigrant Rights Project. Thanks to Greg Grunberg and everyone at Bandwagon Media. If you would like to help refugees get their day in court, as they legally seek asylum, please visit our website and contribute to the Public Council Emergency Fund for Torture Victims. And don't forget to subscribe and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. And tell a friend.